Hello, dreamers, and welcome to this, I want to say, the very first holiday episode of California Dreaming. Technically, I have done one Christmas episode, but that one is exclusively on Patreon. But I really have not done a Christmas episode for you on here, the regular show, in the five and a half years that we have been doing this. I really don't know why, though the last couple Christmases, I have probably been traveling back and forth to California. This year, I am staying put, so we are finally going to do this. Because Christmas is a holiday that I don't want to dismiss. I've got a couple cases I'm going to talk about. I have a lot to say. They're associated with Christmas, but didn't necessarily happen on that day. There may be a case you know, or ones you've never heard before. Some may be mild, while others filled with violence and gore. They may have taken place in California or other locations nearby. Whether they're near or far, I guarantee someone has died. This won't be the usual, say, like John Bonet, told so many times, much to our dismay. While Keith Morrison is reading you Christmas stories in his spare time, Miss Roseanne promises to bring you tales full of mischief, mayhem, and crime. I hope you all have a wonderful holiday, whichever ones you choose to celebrate. I want to thank you all for being here with me today, and I hope you enjoy. Chapter 1. Carnage Incarnation Joseph McEnroe grew up in North Carolina. He was pretty much a troubled kid that grew into a loser adult. His difficult upbringing, of course, was no fault of his own. His parents split early on. His mom would basically have a revolving door of boyfriends, none of which Joseph got along with. And when it came to socializing outside the home, Joseph struggled with that too. He was lonely. He had very few friends, if any at all. Much of his time was spent by himself. And what compounded all of these problems was the fact that Joseph was somewhat of an awkward kid. His childhood and adolescence were spent basically on the sidelines of life. He was going through the motions, but by the time he was pushing 30, he really hadn't gone anywhere in life, and it didn't look as if that was going to change anytime soon. He was holding down a menial, dead-end job, but he really had what was often referred to as delusions of grandeur, that he felt like he should be somebody bigger and better than what he was that he should have been doing great things with his life. But he was too busy blaming the world for him being in the place where he was at that was preventing him or stopping him from reaching his fullest potential, whatever it was in his mind that was responsible for him not living a life of substance or importance. Joseph spent most of his time fantasizing about who he should be, that he should be something greater than he was someone magnificent or powerful or heroic in some other world or dimension of his own creation. 
He wrote and illustrated himself into his own fiction, where he had all these powers and magical, mystical abilities to fight evil. I've also heard that some of his interests may have included things that were satanic or occult-type undertones. I don't really know, and honestly, it's kind of irrelevant. It might be easy to play off being a piece of shit by calling yourself a devil worshiper. Joseph shared his stories in a chat group with others with similar ideas, others who also wrote fantasy fiction. And it was in this chat group that he met a woman named Michelle. Michelle began to show a keen interest in Joseph's writings, and before long, she became a Joseph superfan. Michelle constantly told him how much she loved his writings and drawings. This was the kind of thing that Joseph had longed for, that adoration and reverence. It's what he felt he deserved to be acknowledged for these alleged talents and skills. Michelle fawning over his stuff was a huge ego boost, a thing that he never experienced. It was like a high for him. Joseph and Michelle started talking online on a daily basis. They played online video games together, and things began to turn sexual. I mean, Joseph is here thinking that he's met this perfect woman, the woman that he has fantasized about his entire life. She's beautiful. She's giving him the recognition for his work that he's been searching for. It's everything that he had been wanting and believing that he deserved. Both of these people really were in search of something. What it was on Michelle's end is probably a lot of the same. Just wanting a boyfriend, wanting attention because of loneliness. Michelle would become Joseph's very first girlfriend in real life. After only a six-month-long online relationship, Joseph was not only ready to meet Michelle in person, he was ready to up and leave his home in North Carolina and fly across the country to Carnation, Washington to begin a life with her. He packed up all of his stuff and poof, showed up on the front porch of Michelle's single wide. Well, it really wasn't hers. It belonged to her parents and it sat on their property and she lived in it by herself for free. With Joseph on the way, it was now going to be a single wide double the freeloaders. Joseph couldn't wait to finally lay eyes on his fantasy woman in the flesh. When he showed up knocking on her front door, I'm not sure if Michelle was expecting him or not, or if she really didn't think that he was actually going to fly 3,000 miles across the country to come see her. But she did seem kind of surprised when she opened her door and saw him standing there. At first, she wasn't even sure who he was. But on his end of things, Michelle wasn't exactly what he expected either. She was a little bit frumpier, a little bit bigger, and a little bit more plain Janie than he expected. I don't know if Michelle took fake pictures on her online profiles. She may have had some kind of fantasy avatar, or she may have just had good camera angles. Whatever the case was, Joseph was surprised, but Joseph was also committed. He didn't have options. He had option. And this 
was it. Later on, they both went and got no regrets tattooed across their upper chests. No, they didn't. That's just my own personal fantasy fanfiction. So Joseph was there to stay, apparently with his girlfriend, in her parents' trailer. And when Michelle wasn't busy wasting time online, she actually did have sort of a part-time job as a party clown. Very John Wayne Gacy-ish of her, right? I actually find that to be kind of a fun job as long as you're not a serial mass or spree killer. But then again, if you are in fact a party clown, then people are going to think that you're a serial mass or spree killer. So you're basically damned if you do and damned if you don't. It's a killer job, but somebody's got to do it. The irony in this is built in, right? She's a clown that's hired for children's parties to entertain them, to get them to laugh, to make balloon animals, do some face painting, get them good with the squirting lapel flower, perform a few low-budget magic tricks. It's very ironic, considering how Michelle's story ends. Anyway, the shock that Joseph had found himself in stunned that a minimum wage earning wannabe fantasy fiction writer such as himself has not landed an online supermodel. All of that shock subsided when he and Michelle just fell into what they normally do apart, now doing it together, sitting around, eating junk food, and playing video games, with the exception of sex. Joseph now gets to do sex, for reals, with a girl. Remember, both of these people were 29 years old at the time that this story took place back in 2007. And it is as if they never really matured out of their teenage years. Neither one of them had any ambition or passion or determination. They were not driven to get out of the little holes that they existed in, beyond combining their individual holes into one big loser hole. The interesting thing is, is that if this was a love story for the ages, it would be amazing how much these two actually had in common. They both feel like they've been dealt shitty hands in life. They both feel like they've been wronged by their families. They both have a lot of resentment that seems to have stemmed from this bizarre and unfounded sense of entitlement that neither one of them should need to work hard or make something out of their lives, like as if they exist on a different plane than everyone else, that they are important people and whatever it is they choose to do takes precedence over all other things. The major difference between Michelle and Joseph is that Michelle is the boss of them. That quickly became apparent that Joseph was to be subservient to Michelle. She has been described as a narcissist. While I very much believe that to be the case, I don't exactly know how in her own mind that she got into that space. How it is that she came to think that she is so much more important than everyone else around her. I mean, all she needed to do was take a glance around the single wide and reality should have set in. If I had to take one guess, I'd say Michelle grew up privileged and that she may have been spoiled and that could have just morphed into this lazy state of feeling entitled as an adult. I don't know. I have no idea how this girl wound up in this headspace. 
And that is by no means meant to be a dig at Michelle's parents or their parenting. They are Wayne and Judy Anderson. They are a couple who worked hard for everything that they had, and they were able to provide for Michelle and her older brother, Scott. And when you get to know Scott, you will see that the same set of parents can indeed raise children whose lives can go in two very different directions. Wayne was an engineer at Boeing. Judy worked at the United States Postal Service. Both of those jobs require hard work and dedication. They both can be great careers and make for a very comfortable life, which is exactly what we have going on here. Wayne and Judy, it probably goes without saying, were extremely disappointed with Michelle. As I said, she was 29 years old with absolutely no ambition, no goals, no passions, and most dreadfully worrisome for the two of them, no chance of getting off their property anytime in the foreseeable future. And now, to make matters worse, Michelle's taken in a stray, a code deadbeat, and the last thing that her parents want is to have a litter of mini moocher grandkids populating their trailer. The problems for Michelle, however, run deeper than simply finding a job and getting out into the world on her own. In her eyes, her situation is what it is because of not only her parents and their disappointment, but also the fact that she spent her entire life bringing up the rear in the shadow of her older, successful, do-no-wrong brother, Scott. In fact, not only has Michelle spent her life perpetually in her brother's shadow, she spent the better part of that time all consumed and basically obsessed with it. And when Scott got married to his wife, Erica, it did nothing but to double Michelle's resentment. And then the icing on the cake, they had two children, one in 2002 and another in 2004, effectively tripling and then quadrupling Michelle's problems, sending her into this tailspin of indignation, hostility, and bitterness. Scott was the apple of their parents' eye, and so was Erica. Them, along with the two little brats, only added to Michelle's long-standing annoyance and jealousy that she harbored for her brother. And you know, Scott and Erica really weren't anything exceptional other than the fact that they had goals and they worked hard to achieve them. They worked as a team. They supported and complemented each other. And when one goal was achieved, the next one was set. And when they met that goal, there would be yet another. Scott and Michelle did have another older sister named Susan, but Michelle barely had any type of relationship with her. It was Scott who was the bane of her existence. And every time he came around with his perfect little wife and his perfect little kids, Michelle could do nothing but bite her tongue and quietly seethe. I personally don't have any siblings. I've told you that in the past, and I only have one kid myself. But I do have people in my life who have siblings who will absolutely say that their parents have a favorite, though their parents will try to deny it. I'm not saying that's what's going on here with Wayne and Judy, but from the outside looking in, they've got their son who is successful, who has a career, who has a wife that they adore, and has given them two beautiful grandkids. Then they've got their daughter, 
who lives in their backyard. And when she's not playing a clown at kids' parties, she's back there, holed up in their trailer, playing video games, chain smoking, living on takeout. And if that wasn't enough, she's now moved in her equally slacky boyfriend. I don't doubt that they loved her, but it is not hard to see why Scott may have just barely inched ahead a tiny bit in the favorite kid category. Bottom line, Scott was living his best life and Michelle hated him for it, feeling as if that she should have been living her best life. In her own mind, just like Joseph's, it's everybody else's fault that she's in the situation that she's in. None of this is of her own doing, and this would be from where all the conflict and dissidents within the family stemmed. Now that Joseph was in the mix, Michelle took out all her rage and frustrations onto him. She constantly complained about her family, her parents, her brother, her sister-in-law, how they all think that they're so great, that they're so much better than her. I mean, she's not wrong, am I right? But you know, everybody's destiny is in their own hands, and it wasn't like Michelle was taking any steps to change things for the better for herself. At the end of the day, she was a lazy, slothful parasite who wanted things to be done for her, handed to her, or to just happen on their own without any effort or energy exerted on her part. And Joseph had placed himself front and center to be the punching bag for Michelle to unload on. She had it in her head that all her family does is sit around and talk badly about her behind her back. Everything that they did was meant to criticize, put down, and disrespect her. I can't say for sure, but I really don't think that this family cared to spend that much energy and time on Michelle. But because she seemed to think that the world should be revolving around her, she probably had it in her mind that they are obsessed and consumed with her life, when the truth was, Michelle was the one who was obsessed with them. As for Joseph, that stupid little twit, he had no idea what he was getting himself into when he hopped on that plane back in North Carolina to fly out to Washington State. Did he have regrets? deep down perhaps, but he probably felt stuck. But he gets to have sex, so there's that. You also have to remember that this was a guy who fancied himself some sort of heroic figure in that fantastical world he created for himself through his own drawings, writings, and online activities. Those delusions of grandeur haven't simply disappeared now that he's getting verbally bitch-slapped up and down this single-wide trailer. But still, this wasn't what Joseph had signed up for. The whole point of coming to Carnation, Washington, was for the two of them to partner up and support each other in chasing their shared dreams of becoming important people. What kinds of important people? Doing what sorts of important things and important to exactly who? Only these two malcontents would be able to tell you because I have no idea. But all they were achieving was basically feeding off of each other's apathy and dejection. But the bigger problem here is that they are so deluded in their own minds that it really made them unpredictable and volatile. 
One of the odd things going on with Michelle is that for quite some time she had been making the claim that her brother had borrowed a large sum of money from her. Where this came from or how it all started is anybody's guess. If I had to take a stab at it, I'd say that it was just something that she twisted up in her own head in that same fantasy world that Joseph has been aimlessly floating around in his entire life. Michelle kept telling anybody who would listen that her brother borrowed $30,000 from her. Other times it was $40,000. The amounts changed from telling to telling when the truth was Michelle hardly ever had two nickels to rub together, much less anything close to that amount of money. And she certainly didn't lend it to Scott. Where I believe this may have come from is from one of two places. Either something happened at some point in time where Michelle believed that she was owed something or something was to have been given to her by someone in the family, whether it was her parents or her grandparents or perhaps her brother himself, or she thought it was supposed to have been given to her, but was withheld because of her apathetic directionless existence and she never got it, or it was given to Scott, or perhaps put into a trust fund for his children. There is something in the past where Michelle believed that she was due this certain amount of money or these assets and had yet to receive it. And instead of taking responsibility for it, true to form, she's blaming others. Another possible reason why Michelle might have this idea in her head that her brother owed her all this money was that she just made it up. She just used it as an excuse for her piss poor attitude towards him and his family and framed it as the reasons why they're so successful and have their stuff together while her life is a train wreck because they took this money from her and won't give it back. Whatever it was, Michelle never had that kind of money at any point in her life and nobody owed her anything. Well, except maybe a slap to the face. That would be something that I would give her. Happily even, very happily. So on Sunday, April 8th, 2007, it was Easter and the Andersons were having dinner at their house. Scott, Emily, and his kids, Olivia and Nathan, they were there, as were Michelle and Joseph. The Andersons were really accepting of Joseph. I mean, I don't know how they truly felt deep down, but on the surface, they welcomed him and treated him very nicely. And while this day may not have been the best time for Wayne and Judy to bring up their concerns about their daughter's living situation, life choices, poor judgment, and otherwise abhorrent behavior, it was as good a time as any. And it was probably one of the few times that they would be able to have everyone in the same room, which would have turned this into an intervention of sorts. But as soon as her parents started to bring up some of the issues that they were having with her, and probably her boyfriend too, Michelle immediately became defensive and argumentative and fell back to the only thing that she's good at, blaming others. Talking about how badly the family treated her, how her brother refused to repay that $40,000 loan, money that she worked so hard for. And her brother pretty much laughed in her face and pointed out how absolutely delusional she was. Her sister-in-law was like, we never borrowed a single penny from you. Michelle continued to insist, though, that Scott owed her and that they were all a bunch of thieves and liars. 
This whole thing was starting to turn into a huge verbal altercation when their father Wayne cut off the argument. This wasn't the way he wanted their family problems to be settled. He wanted to be tough on Michelle, but he didn't want this to devolve into a shouting match either. Wayne was desperate to find somehow some way to get through to his wayward daughter. He decided that the only way for Michelle to start taking some responsibility was to start being made to be held responsible. Michelle was told that if she wanted to stay in that trailer on their property, then she was going to have to pay for the rent and pay for her own utilities. Otherwise, she would need to find someplace else to live. And to show Michelle that he was serious, the next major move that Wayne made was he wrote Michelle out of his will and made Scott the executor. So now, if something were to happen to him and Judy, Scott would be the one calling the shots. Gauntlet, down it has been thrown. And as for Michelle, she was already a big, huge, blubbering, loafing, slacking couch spud. Now she's going to be one very angry, blubbering, loafing, slacking couch spud. And it was at that point, after that conversation, that Michelle and Joseph put their empty, vacant heads together and started planning how to get back at her family for what they've done and are continuing to do to her. They were ruining Michelle's life and she intended to put a stop to it. And Joseph, somewhere in that dim, dark space between his ears, had a flicker of an imbecilic thought. This, perhaps, was their destiny. This is what he came there for. This was what they were meant to do. This caused Michelle to have a flicker of an imbecilic thought of her own. She had spent years by then in that trailer fuming and raging on the inside. But now she has numbnuts here who flew thousands of miles so that they could be a pair of numbnuts together who she can use to turn her rage inside out. She'd already been ready to explode for a long time. Joseph was the one who was going to set it off for her. They weren't going to be in a hurry though. Michelle and Joseph were going to take their time figuring out exactly what they wanted to do and when would be the perfect time to do it. All was quiet for the next several months. Spring turned into summer, turned into fall, turned into the beginning of winter. And all, for the most part, everyone seemed to be doing was going about their lives just fine. Christmas was quickly approaching, and this was, hands down, the Andersons' favorite holiday. While they did have older grandchildren with the oldest daughter, because of the tension between the siblings, they had long started their own holiday traditions and weren't really coming around. Since Scott and Emily had their kids in 2002 and 2004, at Christmas time, they became the center of attention for proud grandparents, Wayne and Judy. Everyone was coming over for Christmas Eve, and in the spirit of the holiday season, all their issues and animosities were to be set aside. Michelle and Joseph were welcome to join the holiday gathering for Christmas dinner and for opening presents. Judy and Joseph were busy helping get dinner ready. But it was actually his job to keep Judy occupied while Michelle talked to her father. Michelle and her father were setting up and getting ready in the living room. 
Scott and Emily and the kids had yet to arrive. They were scheduled to be there at 5 p.m. All of this was going on about an hour before their planned arrival. Michelle was using this opportunity when she got her dad alone for a moment to ambush him about this supposed money that Scott owed her. Michelle began demanding that her dad force her brother into handing over the tens of thousands of fictitious dollars that he fictitiously owed her. She basically cornered her dad and ordered him to order her brother to pay her. But Wayne told her that he simply wasn't going to do that, that that wasn't the time or place to have that discussion, that he wanted to enjoy the holiday, and he implored his daughter, please, let's just have a nice time together for Christmas. The rage inside finally exploded. Michelle pulled a gun that she had on her and fired a single bullet at Wayne, missing him by just inches. And everything from there just all went to hell. Judy came running into the living room at the sound of the gunshot, followed closely behind by Joseph. Michelle tried to pull the trigger again, but her gun had jammed. Joseph, also armed, stood there as Michelle began to scream at him to shoot him, shoot him, shoot him. Joseph, being the chump that he was, did as he was ordered. He raised his gun and shot Wayne one time. He fell to the ground. Judy immediately ran over to her husband, screaming and crying and begging Michelle to please don't do this. But on Michelle's order to shoot that bitch, Joseph fired three shots into Judy. Within minutes, if not seconds, both Wayne and Judy were laying dead in a pool of their own blood on the living room floor. At that point, Michelle suddenly lost her tough, ruthless composure and began to slip into a full-blown panic attack once she saw her parents lying on the ground dead. Joseph was in the throes of becoming everything that he had always fantasized for himself this heroic figure. He was completely composed in full control of the situation at that point. The next order of business was for them to begin the cleanup effort. They needed to get rid of the blood and the evidence in an effort to begin covering up what they had done. But they weren't trying to hide everything from the inevitable arrival of law enforcement. They needed to hide it from Scott and Emily who were going to be joining them for what they thought was going to be an evening of family Christmas togetherness. While Joseph dragged Judy and Wayne out into the backyard and concealed their bodies in a tool shed, Michelle cleaned up the blood as much as she possibly could, at least enough for nobody to notice right away that something violent had occurred in that room. After they were done, they sat there and waited. One of their favorite things that five-year-old Olivia and three-year-old Nathan loved to do was to visit their Grammy and Papa, and they couldn't wait to get there on Christmas Eve to see them. And Wayne and Judy adored them just as much. Christmas was always special for them and for the grandkids, and it just had everybody over the moon. When the children walked into the house with their parents, Scott and Emily, they settled into the living room. They sat on the sofa. Scott kicked off his shoes. And then he asked, where are mom and dad? It was then Michelle pulled out her gun again and pointed it at her brother. 
She told him that she wanted the money that he owed her for Christmas. But before he had a chance to say anything, Michelle shot him multiple times, striking him in the head at least once, killing him instantly. At that point, both Joseph and Michelle turned their guns on Erica and began shooting her. As they're doing this, both of their guns ran out of ammunition, and none of those shots that struck Erica were rapidly fatal, nor did any of those gunshots incapacitate her. So when these two were working on reloading their weapons, Erica managed to reach for a nearby cordless house phone and was able to dial 911. She did get that call off, and from all that I could see, the call lasted less than 20 seconds. Meanwhile, Michelle was screaming at Joseph to shoot her. Three bullets were already in Erica's body when she made that 911 call. At the same time, she was begging Michelle and Joseph to not kill her children. The 911 call ended because Joseph grabbed the phone out of Erica's hand. He took the battery out and threw it against the living room wall, breaking the handset into pieces. He then fired two more bullets into Erica, and one of those went right between her eyes. Five-year-old Olivia, who was underneath her mother, was then shot one time in the head. Three-year-old Nathan, holding tightly to his mom, met the same fate. Both of them were shot by Joseph McEnroe, the hero, the fucking hero. And with that, three generations of the Anderson family were wiped out by their own scumbag of a daughter, sister, and auntie, along with her equally scummy boyfriend. That 911 call that Erica managed to make did prompt a visit from law enforcement, but when they arrived at the 10-acre property, the access gate was locked and they decided not to investigate any further. So the bodies of those six members of the Anderson family would lay there for the rest of Christmas Eve, which fell on a Monday that year. They would lay there all of Christmas Day too, and it would not be until the morning of December 26th that someone would become concerned, specifically about the whereabouts of Judy Anderson. She was a postal worker. Her best friend and co-worker, Linda Thiel, arrived at work that morning around 7 a.m. Their mail carriers, they all pretty much get there at the same time like clockwork. The last time Linda had seen or spoken to Judy was a couple of days earlier because they figured that they wouldn't see each other until after Christmas. So they wished each other a happy holidays before they parted ways for the much-anticipated two days off in the middle of the week. Judy wasn't there at 7, which wasn't all that concerning to Linda at first, but by 7.30, Linda felt like there had to have been something going on. It wasn't like Judy to ever really be late, and if she was, it would only be a few minutes. A half hour without any call was very out of character. By 7.45, Linda was worried. She just had this gut instinct that there was something very wrong here. So Linda decided to leave the post office and go and see what was happening at Judy's house. As she drove, Linda's worry grew into a full-blown panic. When she finally got to the house, she went up to the front door and found it to be unlocked, which was also very strange. She cracked the door open and yelled out for Judy but got no answer. 
She opened the door a little bit more and poked her head in, still calling Judy's name. And that's when she spotted a body, which would later be determined to be Scott Anderson. Linda called 911 to report what she had found. Initially, Linda did see three bodies, one woman, one man, and a baby. That would be Scott, Erica, and Nathan. Olivia would later be discovered underneath her mother. At first, though, Linda thought she was seeing Judy and Wayne, but as she was on her 911 call, she was thinking about it, and she wasn't quite sure if she was seeing them or not. The whole thing was so chaotic and so shocking, Linda was having a hard time trying to make sense of what all was going on here and what it was she had just stumbled upon. Within an hour, police, investigators, crime scene technicians, everybody had descended upon the Anderson property in this small suburb outside of Seattle, Carnation, Washington. Population back in 2007 was a little more than 1,800 people. Initially, there were thought to be four victims at the home. It was a little while later that the bodies of Wayne and Judy were discovered hidden in the shed. It was starting to sink in that they were now faced with the worst mass murder event that the little town of Carnation had ever seen. Just a couple of hours after investigators arrived at the Anderson property and still in the early stages of processing the scene, two people showed up unexpectedly standing along the perimeter that had been blocked off by crime scene tape. These two people were telling the police officers that they lived on the property and they wanted to be allowed access to their trailer. It was Michelle and Joseph, the victim's daughter and her boyfriend. Police determined that those two did in fact reside there. Their trailer was not very far away from the main house, so you know right away it's strange that they just moseyed on up to the family home all casual-like, and there's footage of their arrival and of the two of them being greeted by officers because the media was there on the scene too. So they just walked up like any old average day. There's no urgency in their stride. They just shake hands with the cops like this is a totally normal thing to happen upon on a regular winter's day, right? Yeah, no. The cops were immediately suspicious because first of all, where did you just come from and where have you been? If this is where you live, it's the day after Christmas, these six people are your family, you live on this property, and they just walked up to a crime scene swarming with authorities, and they didn't even ask a single question like, oh, say, what's going on here? Not that the average murderer is savvy or intelligent, but you know, even fellow family annihilator Scott Peterson had the forethought to stage the scene by letting the family dog out on its leash before he went to go dump his wife and unborn child in the San Francisco Bay, right? These two morons were like, okay, let's just stroll up the gravel driveway all casual like the dipshits that we are and pretend like we don't know nothing about nothing. And that shouldn't be much of a stretch for these two, right? Wrong. It didn't take long for authorities to zero in on these two. Michelle was unable to hold it together and would end up confessing everything. They were arrested the same day that the bodies were discovered. It would take eight long years for the two of them to make their way through the court system, however. 
Two days after they were taken into custody, both Michelle and Joseph were charged with six counts of aggravated murder. On that same day, in speaking to the Seattle Times, Joseph said that he was sorry that they were killed, that they were his family. And that's a load of bullshit. Six months after that, Michelle told the Times that she did commit the murders and wanted to die, that she wanted a death penalty, she wanted her trial to be waived and be fast-tracked to death row. I mean, that sounds like a good plan to me, but I don't run things. On October 16, 2008, the King County Prosecutor's Office announced their intentions to seek the death penalty against both of these defendants. Two and a half years later, on April 28, 2011, the judge severed Michelle and Joseph's cases and ordered them to be tried separately. However, just two and a half months after that, on July 11th, the deputy prosecutor assigned to the case, James Conant, was removed from both Michelle and Joseph's cases because of some racial epithets that he used during a 2007 trial. Fast forward to January 31st, 2013, the judge on the case made the ruling that the state of Washington cannot seek the death penalty in either Michelle's or Joseph's cases because the prosecutor's office made an error in the strengths of the evidence they had against them when choosing whether or not to seek the death penalty. Which sounds kind of stupid since they both provided full confessions, but whatever. I'm not the judge. I'm just judgy. And well, what do you know? Eight months later, on September 5th, 2013, the Washington Supreme Court overturned that ruling and ordered Michelle and Joseph's death penalty trials to proceed as planned. And then on January 31st, 2014, the judge ruled that if the state failed to amend the charges to allege that there are insufficient mitigating circumstances to merit leniency, which would mean that they would be facing life in prison without parole instead of the death penalty, he was going to entertain a motion from Joseph McEnroe's defense for him to enter a plea of guilty to all charges in exchange for the death penalty to be taken off the table. Then just 11 days after that, then-Governor Jay Inslee announced that while he was in office, nobody would be executed in the state of Washington. He did not, however, commute the sentences of those inmates who were already on death row. So back to the judge's ruling from January 31, 2014, the state Supreme Court stepped in once again and reversed that ruling that that judge had made, requiring prosecutors to amend their charging documents against Michelle and Joseph. They also denied a request to have that judge replaced. On December 19, 2014, the jury selection began in Joseph McEnroe's trial. Testimony started on January 20, 2015. And on March 25th, the jury found Joseph McEnroe guilty on all six counts of aggravated first-degree murder. On May 13th, he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Even though he was facing the death penalty, he managed to ultimately avoid that because of the governor's moratorium on executions. On July 29, 2015, the prosecutor announced that he would no longer be seeking the death penalty against Michelle. Her trial began on January 25, 2016. The jury began deliberations on March 2nd. They convicted her on all counts as well. And on April 21, 2016, Michelle was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, more than eight years after she and Joseph 
brutally orchestrated the annihilation of three generations of her own family. The two of them are currently rotting in prison where they get to spend every last one of their rotten Christmases for the rest of their rotten lives. Chapter 2 Not That Gene Simmons Retired United States Air Force Master Sergeant Ronald Gene Simmons Sr. was a man who had to have complete control over his entire family. He would not have it any other way. Three days before Christmas in 1987, Simmons snapped and embarked on a rampage, one which, when he was finished, would be one of the worst mass murder sprees in Arkansas history, and I believe stands as the worst crime involving the most members of a single family in United States history. With his obsession with being in control, it made Simmons the textbook definition of a psychopath. The only way this man was able to exist was if he kept everybody else under his complete control. Everyone had to follow his rules. There were absolutely no exceptions. The enforcement of his rules and the punishments for not following them were as swift and as harsh as he could possibly make them. Simmons was born July 15, 1940 in Chicago, Illinois to parents William and Loretta. However, when Simmons was only two and a half years old, his father suffered a stroke and passed away. And less than a year later, his mom remarried another guy also named William, William Griffin. He was an engineer with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, and about two years after they got married in 1946, his job transferred him to Little Rock, Arkansas. Over the course of the next 10 years, Simmons' stepfather's jobs would have the family move several times across central Arkansas. These constant moves and changes were difficult for Simmons. He had a hard time adjusting to every single new place that he had to go to. He had difficulty making friends and eventually just settled into being a loner, and he garnered himself the reputation of being a class bully. When Simmons was 17 in 1957, his behavior became so difficult and unmanageable he ended up either getting kicked out of school or he dropped out or was pulled out and he was subsequently sent to a military academy. While this move was meant to be a punishment for his bad behavior, Simmons actually did really well having been made to live under the strict and regimented conditions. He graduated from the military academy in 1958 and decided that he wanted to continue on in the military and he joined the Navy. Simmons was stationed in the state of Washington, and it was there he met Rebecca Ulibari. They got married when Simmons was 20 years old. Rebecca was of Spanish descent. She was petite with long, beautiful black hair. And over the course of the next nearly two decades, she and Simmons would have seven children together. Jean Jr. in 1961, Sheila Marie in 1963, William II, named after his father, in 1965, Loretta in 1970, who incidentally was randomly born in California, all the rest of the children were born in Arkansas, 
Eddie in 1973, Marianne in 1976, and Rebecca in 1979. Since we're on the Simmons family tree, I want to finish it up now. It gets a little bit complicated and a lot bit problematic. There would end up being four grandchildren, the complicated one being the first one born in 1981. Her name was Sylvia Gale, and she was born to the eldest of the Simmons children, Sheila. As it would turn out, Sylvia Gale was not only Simmons's granddaughter, but also his daughter. So yeah, he did that. However, Sheila would later give her daughter her husband's last name, which was McNulty. Their second grandchild was born to their eldest son, Jean Jr. Her name was Barbara, born in 1984. The third grandchild was also born to Sheila, a boy that she named Michael, born in 1986. And also in 1986, their third eldest child, William II, had a son he named William III. So I know it's a big family tree, and you really don't need to remember all of them, though they are important to the story. I don't want you to have to worry about keeping their names straight. In 1987, when this story took place, at least two of the oldest children were married. Sheila was married to Dennis McNulty, and William II was married to Renata Simmons. These were the ones who were the parents to all of the grandchildren. Dennis was technically the stepfather to one of them. Two other people who are important in the story that you don't necessarily have to remember their names either are 24-year-old Kathy Kendrick and 33-year-old James Chafin. Don't worry, in the end, it's all going to make sense. I mean, the story is kind of senseless, but you'll understand where all of these people fit in. Two years after Simmons joined the Navy, he left and joined the Air Force instead and became stationed in New Mexico. And Simmons had quite a decorated career earning a Bronze Star, the Republic of Vietnam Gallantry Cross, and the Air Force Ribbon for Excellence in Marksmanship. Simmons retired after 22 years of service on November 30, 1979, at the rank of Master Sergeant. About a year and a half after he retired, Simmons found himself being investigated by the Department of Human Services in New Mexico over allegations that he was the father of his 17-year-old daughter's child. The investigation began in April of 1981, and the baby was born that June 17th. Sheila was a little more than four months away from turning 18 when she gave birth, but Simmons was afraid of getting arrested and charged with incest, so he left New Mexico towards the end of 1981 and took his family along with him, and they all ended up in Ward, Arkansas, which is a part of the Little Rock metropolitan area. And then 18 months later, he relocated again about an hour and a half west to a town called Dover, Arkansas. Simmons named the land that they lived on Mockingbird Hill, which doesn't surprise me considering how sick Simmons was. And what he ended up doing was he took two mobile homes and turned them into one super mobile home. But there really wasn't anything super about it. And it was like they not only traveled back to Arkansas, but they seemed to somehow travel back to the 19th century. They had no telephone. 
they had no indoor plumbing, and Simmons managed to turn this whole mess into a quote-unquote compound because he enclosed it with some kind of ramshackle jury-rigged privacy fence. And because they had no plumbing, he forced his kids to dig three giant cesspits, which sounds absolutely disgusting. I've never even heard the word cesspit. I've heard cesspool. But yeah, this is where they're going to go to the bathroom. Simmons ended up having a series of menial jobs in the town of Russellville, but the guy just couldn't really hold one down. One, he had to quit because several female co-workers filed sexual harassment reports against him. He found a job working at a mini-mart for a little more than a year, but he just up and quit on December 18, 1987. And I'll explain more about that later on. By that time, two of his children, William II and Sheila, the one that he had fathered the baby with, had moved out and got married and were starting families of their own. Throughout his marriage to Rebecca, Simmons treated her like he did the units that he was in charge of when he was in the Air Force. And it started pretty much from the very beginning. Simmons would control what Rebecca would wear, how she wore things, right down to how many buttons she had buttoned on her blouses. She had to have her hair pulled back in a bun at all times, and he forbid her from wearing makeup. Rebecca was never allowed to receive any mail. Her family never really knew where she was living. He abused her physically, mentally, emotionally, psychologically, and sexually. Despite the terrible way that he treated her and how much he controlled her, Rebecca stayed for a really long time, probably out of fear. It is speculated that because Simmons had such a chaotic childhood, that when he got a taste of that order and discipline and control he had at that military academy, he discovered a way of living that he thrived in, and that was the way he wanted to run his own family. He controlled what his wife did, where she went, who she communicated with, what she wore, and how she looked in order to prevent her from ever leaving him for another man. After Simmons got out of the military, it would be the very first time in his adult life that he lived without the structure and regiment of the military, and he felt this urgency to replicate that in his new civilian life. He started with tightening the control he had over his wife more than ever, and he began to isolate his children from friends, neighbors, and anybody that they socialized with outside the home. But the one that he exerted the most power and control over when it came to his children, and in the worst ways, was with his oldest daughter, Sheila. Simmons had always shown a great deal of favoritism towards her, and a big part of the reason why he started isolating the family more and more was so that he would be able to continue to abuse her sexually. But the family knew what was going on, even Rebecca's family outside, her main family, her family of origin. There were whispers and rumors, and it wasn't like Simmons was doing very much to hide what he was doing. He would do things like sit Sheila in his lap, and this was going on well into her late teens. It was just really obvious and inappropriate. And from what I understand, it seemed as if Sheila 
had been completely and totally groomed by her father. She had been shown a great deal of favoritism. She was most likely dodging all of the physical abuse and control that her siblings were subjected to. And sometimes that's enough for a child to fall into compliance. It got to the point where Simmons wasn't even hiding what he was doing to Sheila from his wife. Rebecca was kind of shoved aside, and in this really weird and twisted way, Simmons and Sheila started to appear like they were a couple instead. When Sheila was 16, almost 17 years old, she got pregnant. The family tried to hide it for as long as they could. And, I stated earlier, Sheila gave birth to a daughter she named Sylvia on June 17, 1981. Sylvia was Simmons's own granddaughter and his own daughter. Technically, Sheila gave birth to her own sibling. So, as I said a few minutes ago, Simmons got onto the radar of the Department of Health and Human Services, but it was his oldest son, his namesake, Gene Jr., who was the one who went to the authorities and made the report about his father sexually abusing and impregnating his sister. Simmons was going to be charged with incest, however, Sheila made it clear that she would not be willing to testify against her dad if she was called upon to do so. But even without her cooperation, Simmons was going to be charged anyway. So to avoid having to be made to answer to those charges and likely going to prison, he fled to Arkansas. New Mexico authorities eventually gave up on trying to track him down. Being on the run only added to Simmons' need to not only increase the control he had over his family, but to also increase the isolation for himself and his family from the rest of the world. The only thing the children were allowed to do outside this quote-unquote compound that Simmons had built on their property was to go to school. They were ordered to return straight home from school. They were not allowed to stay after for any sort of extracurricular activity. They were not allowed to go over to any of their friends' houses. Simmons even added barbed wire along the sections of that privacy fence that he built that separated them from their neighbors that had children in order to prevent his kids from being able to socialize with any of them. As the sun would start to set each evening, the rule was that all of the windows had to be shut, locked, and the shades pulled. But you know, like we've seen in cases like this before, children don't stay children forever. They grow up, they get bigger, they develop independence or at least a desire for it. And little by little, the older children start to come home less and less. They began to develop relationships, and that included Sheila. She began dating Dennis McNulty, and this enraged Simmons, as he acted like his daughter was cheating on him. And that is what became a turning point for Simmons. It's really sick. But he felt as if he had lost a girlfriend or a wife to another man. And once that happened, once he lost the person that he had the most control over to another person, it was as if his whole life had imploded. Nothing would ever be the same for Simmons or his family once he viewed this as Sheila having left him. Simmons began cutting himself off from everyone and everything, including his family not even speaking to any of them. He quit his job. He isolated himself in his bedroom, 
only coming out to use the restroom outside in those cesspits. So here we have a man obsessed with being in control, losing control. It was the first time this had ever happened to him, not having absolute control over his kids, especially Sheila. He simply could not cope with it, and he refused to put up with it. In addition to that, Simmons felt completely betrayed by his family, not just one of them, all of them as a whole. Every single one of them he felt had turned on him. Even the littlest ones who were 8, 10, and 13. Simmons was seeing himself as the victim here when all along he had been the only one victimizing everybody else. Simmons had reached a point where he was completely unable to deal with the reality of what was going on around him. And with him isolating himself in his bedroom, while it may have been a very welcomed reprieve from all of the abuse, it was actually a very, very dangerous place for Simmons to be. It was dangerous for them, his family. Someone like Simmons had to exert control over his family because he pulled back from that. In hindsight, it was an indicator that things were going to go from awful to unimaginably awful very quickly. By the middle to end of December of 1987, Simmons was in this very dreadful and dire place in his mind, worse than he had ever been as Christmas Day was coming up. His oldest daughter, Sheila, who he had this twisted relationship with that he so far considered her to be his girlfriend, had moved out. She'd gotten married and had another child. When Sheila, quote unquote, left him in his eyes, his world crumbled. For a man who could not live in a world where he did not have and maintain absolute control over every single member of his family, it was absolutely unacceptable and he was not going to allow it. But he all but stopped having anything to do with his family. He stopped working, he stopped talking to everybody, and he isolated himself into his bedroom. Nobody had any clue that this man was coming up with a plan that would go down in history. The holidays were coming up, and the matriarch of the family, Rebecca, she was doing her best to keep the peace and to have Simmons thinking that all things were normal and going along as usual. But what was really happening in the background is that Rebecca had been talking to the children and telling them that they just couldn't go on like that anymore. Unbeknownst to her tyrannical husband, Rebecca was able to send a letter off to her third oldest son, William II, who was living outside the home, telling him that she was ready to take back her life and the lives of the children who was still there with her, that they were desperate to escape to freedom, that she no longer wanted her and her children to be living like prisoners. What Rebecca didn't know was that Simmons had spent all that time alone, festering in his own rage, and orchestrating a plan to ensure that that would never happen. But Simmons surprised his family first by giving Rebecca permission to purchase a Christmas tree. For the first time in God knows how long, he also allowed her to decorate the tree and the home. And the plan was to have all of their children and grandchildren come over to celebrate the holidays together. It would be the first time in a while that they would all gather together like that in the same place. 
Simmons had gone out and purchased Christmas gifts for everyone. He had even got a gift for Rebecca's mother, his mother-in-law. Simmons, however, had no intentions of giving any of them their presents. Remember, this is a man who had been full of rage for just about his entire adult life, and he had really been stewing in it for months by the time the holidays came around. He's not gotten better. He's not turned over a new leaf. He's not trying to be all festive and Father Christmas-like. Simmons had been keeping his fury tamped down for just the right time, and that right time was Christmas time. On Tuesday, December 22nd, 1987, Rebecca and Simmons saw all of the children off to school that day with the exception of two of them. Once they were gone, Simmons retrieved a crowbar and bludgeoned Rebecca about the head. It didn't kill her, but it did knock her unconscious. At home at the time with them was their oldest son, Gene Jr., and his three-year-old daughter, Barbara. With the house all decorated and thinking that she's going to get presents from her grandpa, he called her into the living room and he instead wrapped his hands around her neck and strangled the life out of her. That's one dead. Simmons next took the crowbar and bludgeoned her father, his son, 26-year-old Gene Jr., and shot him four times in the face. That's two dead. Simmons then went back to where his wife Rebecca lay and put two rounds into her head. That's three dead. Later on that afternoon, as the children arrived home from school, Simmons instructed them to wait in one room and that he was going to call them into another room one at a time because he had a present for each of them. And one at a time, they each met with death. 17-year-old Loretta, strangled. That's four dead. 14-year-old Eddie, strangled. That's five dead. 11-year-old Marianne, strangled. That's six dead. 8-year-old Becky, strangled. That's seven dead. From there, Simmons dumped all seven of them into one of the cesspits, the very cesspits that his children had been ordered to dig so that they would have a place to go to the bathroom. Four days later, on Saturday, December 26, 1987, the rest of the family were invited by Simmons for a post-Christmas family dinner. They had no idea that more than half of their entire family were dead. After they had all arrived, Simmons first murdered the adults, his oldest daughter, and the one that he was so despondent over, 24-year-old Sheila, was shot. That's eight dead. His third oldest son, 22-year-old William II, shot. That's nine dead. His son-in-law, Sheila's husband, 33-year-old Dennis, shot. That's 10 dead. His daughter-in-law, William II's wife, 21-year-old Renata, shot. That's 11 dead. Then Simmons turned his sights on his remaining grandchildren. The one he fathered with his daughter, Sheila, six-year-old Sylvia, strangled. That's 12 dead. Sheila's second child, one-year-old Michael, strangled. That's 13 dead. And the last member of Simmons' family, one-year-old William III, drowned. That's 14 dead. 
Simmons next took the bodies and laid them all in a row in the living room and covered them with jackets, with the exception of one, the daughter that he was in love with, Sheila. He laid her body on the dining room table and covered her with a beautiful tablecloth that had once belonged to his mother. Sheila had betrayed him in the worst way, and he just could not let her go. He wrapped the bodies of his two one-year-old grandsons in plastic and placed their bodies in an abandoned car at the end of the lane that led to his property. With the murders of all 14 of his family members, Simmons effectively exerted the ultimate act of control over their lives and their deaths. They would never be able to leave him again. He would forever be in charge of each and every single one of them. From there, Simmons drove to the nearby town of Russellville where he had once worked. He went to the Sears. It turned out Simmons had ordered presents for his children and his grandchildren. They were just still sitting there at the Sears store waiting to be picked up. I guess he wanted to keep the presents for himself. That evening, he went to a local bar. He had a couple of drinks and then he went home. He spent the rest of Saturday the 26th and Sunday the 27th watching TV and drinking beers. But the killing wasn't quite over with. On Monday, December 28th, he took his oldest son, Gene Jr.'s car, and drove it to Russellville again. He stopped in at a Walmart and bought another gun. Because this is 1987 Arkansas, I guess there was no waiting period, no applications, no background check. He next drove to the law offices of Peel, Eddie, and Gibbons. He entered the building and shot and killed 24-year-old receptionist Kathy Kendrick. That's 15 dead. Simmons had apparently been infatuated with Kathy at one time, but she rejected him. And he, for reasons only he would know, blamed her for all of his problems. Simmons next drove to the Taylor Oil Company, he entered that building and shot and wounded Rusty Taylor, the owner of the Mini Mart where he had worked for 18 months before he quit. He also shot and killed 33-year-old Jim Chafin, a man that Simmons did not know. That's 16 dead. Jim Chafin was a firefighter but also a part-time truck driver for the oil company. Simmons shot at a third employee in the building but missed that person, and after that, he left. He next drove to the Mini Mart where he had once worked and shot and wounded two employees, Roberta Woolery and David Saylor. Simmons' final stop would be another place where he used to work, the Woodline Freight Company. He tracked down his former boss, Joyce Butts, and shot and wounded her in the chest and in the head. He then ordered another employee, Vicki Jackson, into an office at gunpoint and told her to call law enforcement. Vicki Jackson later reported that Simmons told her that he had come to do what he wanted to do and that it was over. He got everybody who had wanted to hurt him. When the Russellville police arrived at the freight company, Simmons surrendered without incident. The State versus Gene Simmons Sr. Considering all that he had done, having murdered 16 people, 14 of them being his own family, his case moved along surprisingly quick through the court system. In short order, Simmons was found competent to stand trial, 
He first stood trial for the murders of the two people who weren't members of his family, Kathy Kendrick and Jim Chafin. On May 12, 1988, less than five months after the murder spree, Simmons was found guilty and sentenced to death plus 147 years. Under oath, Simmons issued a statement to the court that he supported being sentenced to death and he waived his rights to appeal it. Simmons stood trial a little more than two years after the murders for killing the 14 members of his family. This one was a bench trial and he was found guilty on all charges on February 10, 1989. During the trial, the prosecutor presented an undated note found inside a safe deposit box belonging to Simmons where he wrote of an intense love and an intense hate for his daughter, Sheila. When the judge ruled the note admissible, Simmons lunged at the prosecutor, punching him in the face, and attempted to reach for the court officer's gun. Simmons was subdued and placed in chains and leg irons. He was subsequently given more death sentences on March 16, 1989. For a second time, Simmons waived his rights to appeal the sentence. The following month, Simmons was again found to be competent to make that decision, which was the refusal to appeal his death sentences because you have to be competent in order to do that. As a direct result of Simmons' refusal to appeal his death sentences, the United States Supreme Court case Whitmore v. Arkansas was triggered. When Simmons was convicted and sentenced, the laws in the state of Arkansas did not require automatic appeals of death sentences. Not only did Simmons choose to not appeal his sentence, he wanted to be fast-tracked to the death chamber. And I mean, I'm not mad at that. His statement to the court reads as follows. I, Ronald Gene Simmons Sr., wanted to be known that it is my wish and my desire that absolutely no action by anybody be taken to appeal or in any way change this sentence it is further respectfully requested that the sentence be carried out expeditiously. So as long as Simmons was found to be competent, which he was, he was allowed to waive those capital appeals. His sentence was verified and his execution was going to move forward when another Arkansas death row inmate named Jonas Whitmore filed a lawsuit on not only his behalf, but also on behalf of Gene Simmons Sr., in August 1986, Whitmore was invited into the home of 62-year-old Essie Mae Black, even though she did not know him. She offered him some milk and some cookies, and for her kindness, Whitmore stabbed her ten times, slit her throat, and sliced an X into her right cheek and robbed her of $250. At trial, Whitmore insisted that when he was inside Mrs. Black's home, that he had a flashback of his childhood sexual abuse, and this caused him to lash out. Whitmore was sentenced to death for Mrs. Black's murder. Unlike Simmons, Whitmore did not want to be put to death in Arkansas's death chamber, and he appealed until he could appeal no more, but was about to file a habeas corpus motion at the federal level, which is basically an unlawful imprisonment motion. He wanted to have Simmons' death sentences appealed in Arkansas because he thought that if his habeas corpus motion in federal court was successful and he was granted a new trial and convicted again, that when it was time for sentencing, his one measly murder 
would look way less awful compared to Simmons' 16 murders. This lawsuit Whitmore filed was his attempt to force Simmons to appeal his case where Whitmore claimed that he was suffering injury by Simmons' refusal to appeal and that there was an absence of Simmons' murders to be considered during his sentencing review, that the lack of an appeal in Simmons' case violated the constitutional protections against cruel and unusual punishments and due process, and Whitmore filed his lawsuit as next friend to Simmons in an attempt to force, using Simmons' name, the appeal that Simmons himself had waived. The Arkansas Supreme Court rejected Whitmore's motion to intervene in Simmons' case, though Whitmore was given a stay of execution by the United States Supreme Court in March of 1989 in order to allow more time for it to take his case into consideration. Thirteen months later, however, the Supreme Court ruled against Whitmore, rejecting the claim that he was being injured because of Simmons' case and that he could not prove that Simmons filing an appeal would change any future sentencing outcome, that the mandatory appeal of Simmons' case was not a right that could or would be granted to Whitmore personally, that it was not cruel and unusual punishment for Simmons to not be forced to appeal his death sentence, and therefore Whitmore had no cause of action. Furthermore, Whitmore was not eligible to file his lawsuit as next friend of Simmons because not only did Simmons voluntarily and of sound mind waive his rights to appeal, but this next friend was meant for those who were unable to litigate their own cause because of mental incapacity, lack of access to court, or some other disability. I know all of that was a mouthful. If you didn't quite understand it, because amazingly, I did. I will put it in writing and post it for you if you would like. Because of Whitmore's lawsuit, Simmons' execution was stayed. His first death warrant had been signed by then-Governor Bill Clinton, and while he was having his last meal and watching some last TV, Simmons was told that today was not going to be the day. But two months after the Supreme Court said, yeah, no, to Whitmore's lawsuit. Governor Clinton signed death warrant number two for Simmons, and he was put to death on June 5, 1990. Whitmore met the same fate four years later on May 11, 1994. Along with being the worst mass spree killer in Arkansas history, and the worst murders involving a single family in American history, Simmons also broke the record for being the quickest sentence to execution time since the death penalty was reinstated in 1976. In his last day, Simmons refused all visitors, he refused to see his attorney, and he refused to see clergy. Nobody claimed his body after he was dead. Either he killed everybody that may have, or nobody cared to, or both. So Simmons was buried in a pauper's plot at a cemetery in Varner, Arkansas. And to him, I say goodbye and good riddance. This guy got a much more dignified burial than his family did. Chapter 3 Santa is not going to be kissing mommy this year. 
The third and final story we are going to discuss today takes place back in good old Southern California. Our first two chapters involve disturbing and horrifying cases of family annihilators. And while this third chapter also involves family, there aren't nearly as many victims, only one this time. But this story you'll find to be quite disturbing in its own right. Unfortunately, there is very little to be found out there about the individuals involved in this story, so this final chapter will be shorter than the first two. Zazelle Preston was married to a man named William Wallace. At the time, Zazelle was 26 years old, born December 5, 1985. She was a native of Orange County, California. At the time, Wallace was 30. They hadn't been together for very long, at least relatively long, about a few years, maybe three or four. And by the time our story took place, most of their relationship had been wrought with very intense, vicious fights, with Zazelle being on the receiving end of Wallace's violence. Prior to his relationship with Zazelle, Wallace had a long history of domestic violence with previous intimate partners and relationships, including at least one conviction for domestic battery. He had been married once before, but that marriage ended sometime in 2008. When Zazelle met Wallace, she had two daughters from a previous relationship. She and Wallace also had a baby together, born in November of 2011, just seven weeks before our story takes place. I found Zazelle's Facebook page, and it doesn't really go back all that far. In fact, I reached the beginning of it with just five finger scrolls on my phone. And because there is so little out there about her, I'm going to share some of her posts with you so you can get a sense of her state of mind in the two previous years of her life. Her first uploads were in an album she called Model Shots from November of 2009. And Zazelle does indeed look like she could be a model, but her pictures do look like they were taken with a 2009 cell phone. The resolution just isn't that great, but she is very beautiful nonetheless. In one post on November 20th, 2009, she wrote, I am happy with my success in my life. But less than two months later, on January 12, 2010, Zazelle wrote in all caps, I'm so sad, man. And then in the comments, she said that life was stressing her out and she wanted to go back to school. After a string of ranty negative complaining posts on April 22, 2010, Zazelle posted, I am so happy my art was chosen to be in the student art show. So here we have a little bit of an insight into Zazelle that in addition to being an aspiring model, perhaps, she was also an artist in some capacity. From there, Zazelle had another series of really negative posts. She ranted about haters and stupid people in her life, real friends, fake friends, and so on. Those go from April of 2010 to October. And then in November, her post was a positive one that said, Today is a beautiful day. It feels so great to find your own true inner happiness. On December 16, 2010, Zazelle wrote, I wonder how God feels about this place. Then she posted Merry Christmas on the 25th, 
Happy New Year on the 31st, and then all went quiet until February 2nd, 2011, when Zazel posted, Life is truly what we make of it. We get back what we give out. I wish everyone I know love, peace, and happiness. A week later, she posted, Today is going to be a beautiful day. Be glad and rejoice in it. On February 23, 2011, Zazel posted a picture of one of her daughters and captioned, My pride and joy. This little gift keeps me going. On February 26, Zazel posted, It's funny how friends want to take your leftovers. LMFAO bitches. So, I read into that that there may be some man drama, possibly some cheating, maybe cheating with her friends. That same day, she posted, I hate fake ass people. A couple of weeks later, on March 7th, 2011, Zazel posted a picture of her daughters at the zoo. On March 10th, Zazel posted, I'm loving my bullshit free life. I'm loving it. On March 21st, 2011, Zazel posted, Good morning, Facebook. I'm on my way to work on the set of Wonder Woman. I looked it up and sure enough, there was a TV pilot of Wonder Woman being filmed at that time, but it was not picked up by NBC and it never aired. Zazel next posted a couple of pics from a Pride event in Long Beach on May 22nd, 2011, and I looked that up and there was indeed an event called Long Beach Pride Weekend on the 21st and 22nd of May. All was quiet until July 10th, 2011 when Zazel posted her first Facebook picture with Wallace and captioned it, I love my baby so much. On July 22nd, Zazel posted about an accident her daughter had that she had almost lost her, but she was okay. In the comments, Zazel said that she had an accident in her mom's pool that's only three feet deep, that her daughter had let go of the edge and started to drown, but Zazel quickly spotted her under the water and jumped in and saved her, and that her daughter was okay, but Zazel was pretty shaken up. The next day, Zazel posted a picture of Wallace with hearts around it and captioned, I can't wait to see my sexy ass husband next week. I love my baby more than air with this fine ass. But two days later, Zazel was angry again when she posted, I don't know why MFers are so damn stupid AF. People make me want to slap the dog shit out of their stupid ass, I swear. I can't afford to fight six months prego, but I will if I have to. In the comments, Zazel said that she was referring to some comments in the previous picture she had posted of Wallace. While the comments seem to be gone, it appears as though it may have been one of Wallace's exes that was snooping around on her Facebook. It's just a lot of nonsense. Ex-girlfriend drama, I guess, or ex-wife. Zazel had a couple of more ranty posts later on that same day. Then two days later, on July 26, 2011, Zazel posted a picture of something she said were tamales that her neighbor gave her. She captioned, um... Are tamales supposed to look like this? My neighbor gave that to me. I'm not effing with that, you. But then in the comments, one of her friends explained, and I was today years old when I learned, Cuban tamales are wrapped in banana leaves, which would explain the dark green color and odd shape of the tamales in the picture she posted. Now, if I would have seen those tamales in person, I would have definitely been on board with that, because lots of Vietnamese things that I love are wrapped in banana leaves too. 
Zazel replied to the comment about those being Cuban tamales by saying, Oh, I see. I thought they were leaves from outside. I'm used to the other kind with the corn wrap stuff. And I'm like, me too, girl, me too. But I need to try me some Cuban tamales now. I just don't know where to get them. On July 28th, Zazel posted, God, please help me. All she would say in the comments was that she was having a really hard time. She figured being pregnant was making her more emotional and she needed to try harder to stay calm. The next day, she posted, I'm so happy my husband is home. Thank you, Jesus. Where was he at? My guess would be at the side chicks or at the county jail, but I don't know. Zazel didn't say in her post. On July 31st, Zazel posted a picture of herself sitting on Wallace's lap in front of a fountain captioned, My husband and I had a beautiful day yesterday. By the way, none of her friends, and she doesn't really have that many, there's like about 60 of them, none of them ever comment on Zazel's positive happy posts just on her angry, ranty ones, if they comment at all. On July 31st, Zazel posted a picture of herself and Wallace kissing and captioned, Lovebirds for Life. On August 4th, Zazel posted, This little baby got me eating Mexican food every day. He loves it because that's all I eat. On August 11th, she posted, I hate it when I feel like this. Two days later, she posted, no matter how much you think somebody's going to change, things just get worse when someone has no respect for you, they never will. The following day, August 14th, 2011, Zazel posted this troubling status. Bye to my friends. I'm done with this life. It's my time to go. In the comments, only one of her friends commented and asked if she was quoting song lyrics. In all caps, Zazel commented that they're not lyrics, I'm out of this effing place, understand, and don't nobody give a fuck, and I'm glad to do what I'm about to do. That same friend asked if she wanted to chat, and then posted a Bible verse, then told Zazel to fight off the devil, and to find a quiet place and pray. Zazel replied, yeah, I feel you, but prayer don't always work fast enough, man, for real. I will be dead before a prayer even works. This some real life stuff I'm talking about, man, for real. That same friend posted another Bible verse, and that was the end of the comments on that post. Zazel went silent on Facebook for more than two months after that post. On October 22nd, she posted a series of pictures of herself in front of some graffiti art. The next day, Zazel posted a picture of her very pregnant self with Wallace standing behind her with his hands on her belly captioned, My husband and I at our family's party. Then there were a series of pictures with some other family members of Wallace's. Three days later, on October 25th, Zizel posted, Please pray for my husband. I'm going crazy. I'm worried. I can't eat or sleep. God help us. What was going on with Wallace? I have no idea, and nobody commented. On October 27th, Zizel posted, Pulled an all-nighter till my mom's computer blew up during my midterm, and the last pages fucked up on me. I'm trying so hard, man. The devil is so busy. I rebuke Satan in the name of Jesus right now. And then on October 31st, 2011, Zazel's final post reads, Happy Halloween, everybody. Be safe. And that one, again, had no likes and no comments. There weren't any other social media accounts that belonged to Zazel that I could find. And based on what I went over, 
that I found on Facebook. While there isn't really any indication of the domestic violence that was going on, it is clear that Zazel was frequently struggling with the relationship that she had with Wallace, and it was tumultuous. A little less than two months later, Zazel, her two daughters, eight years old and three years old at the time, and her seven-week-old newborn, along with Wallace, should have been getting ready to spend the holidays together as a family. At the time, they were living in an apartment in the city of Anaheim. On December 24th, they attended a Christmas party at a friend's place. They returned home that evening, and as far as anyone knew, everyone went to bed to get some sleep so Santa could make his visit and deliver presents for the children, right? Yeah. It kind of didn't happen that way. 911 received a call from Zazel and Wallace's apartment on Christmas morning, a little after 9 a.m. Whoever made that call, it isn't clear, but they were asking for an ambulance, telling them that somebody was unconscious and was in need of medical attention. The police were the first to arrive on the scene, and it was pretty clear that Zazel was not only dead, she was dead and cold so she had obviously been deceased for quite some time. When they looked further around the apartment, the police discovered large amounts of blood throughout, and some of the walls and doors had been damaged. Wallace was immediately taken into custody. He was subsequently charged with murder, and Wallace would end up spending the next nearly 10 years in the county jail awaiting trial. Why this took 10 years, I have no idea. I looked around and I couldn't figure out what had happened. I couldn't find anything. I even checked Reddit and they were asking, why is this taking so long? So Wallace finally went on trial in early 2021. And on April 7th, he was convicted of second degree murder, though the jury had options ranging from first degree murder to involuntary manslaughter. In June of 2021, Wallace was sentenced to 15 years to life. During the trial, the prosecutor described the history of domestic violence in their relationship with Zazel that ended in her death. It was Wallace's claim that Zazel had hit her head and did not realize that the injury was fatal until the next morning. Wallace's attorney claimed that both of them had been drinking at that party and Zazel's injuries were of her own fault, her own doing, and not caused by Wallace and that there was nothing to show that Wallace ever intended to kill her. The prosecutor, however, of course, disagreed, pointing out that Wallace had made previous threats to Zazel's life, and this night, on Christmas Eve, he finally made good on those. The daughter, who was eight years old at the time of her mother's death, was 17 when she gave testimony at Wallace's trial. She told the jury how her mom and her stepdad were arguing when they arrived home from the Christmas party they went to earlier in the evening. She talked about how that argument eventually escalated from verbal to physical. She said that Wallace pushed her mom into a glass table. After she fell and broke the table into shards of glass, he then asked her, only eight years old at the time, to help him pull the pieces of glass out of her mom's body that were stuck in her skin. When they got most of the glass out, Wallace then picked Zazel up to take her into the bathroom to try and clean her up. But in doing so, 
He dropped her, and he caused her head to slam into the side of the toilet. The daughter stated at trial, after she hit the toilet, and I think she passed away, he just took her to the bedroom and put her down to sleep while she was deceased. That is what I remember because she was cold. The daughter said the next morning, she and her little sister woke up and went into the living room to open up their presents. Wallace had dragged her mother's body into the living room, propped her up on the sofa, and put sunglasses on her. He then placed their seven-week-old son somehow in her arms or in her lap and then told the girls that their mommy ruined Christmas, that she got drunk and ruined Christmas. Ironically and sadly, Zazel was only weeks away from graduating from Cypress College, where she had been studying to become a domestic violence counselor, inspired in part by her own personal experiences. Her three children were left in the care of her mother, Seidel. Wallace is going to be eligible for parole in February of 2024. He was convicted just a year and a half ago, but spent nearly a decade in jail. So he had all that time served. The bright side of this final chapter of this episode is that, unlike the killers in the first two chapters, William Wallace did not harm those children. And we can only hope that he spent his time in jail and in prison working on himself, getting counseling, and getting educated because he is going to be free again soon and he will only be in his early 40s. So if the system works like it's supposed to, we will hopefully never hear from William Wallace again unless he's going to give a TED Talk on how he turned his life around. I want to thank you all so much for listening to this episode. I want to wish you all a Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Kwanzaa greetings, Happy Boxing Day, or Happy Containers of All Kinds Day if you're into inclusivity. Happy holidays to all of you. I hope you're keeping warm and enjoying time with your families or if you're by yourself enjoying your alone time. I am very much looking forward to making 2023 the best. I love all of you so much with all of my heart. And until next time, sweet dreams.